Welcome to the This Makes Me Uncomfortable podcast, where we discuss all things that make us uncomfortable. I'm your co-host, Allura. And I'm your other co-host, Jade. And this week, the title of our episode is, in the words of the iconic Allura Marie Cruz, love is a trigger word. And we'll be talking about all things love and attachment. Can't wait. I've been looking forward to this episode Mm. for so long. Honestly, with it. yeah, since that day that you said love is a trigger word, just in passing, like it was just a casual yeah. thing, it, it really was emblazoned on my heart as something that is a truism for all of us and that we needed to discuss in more depth. So yes, it's uh, words we live by. You are a human fortune cookie. Very much so. So intro questions. Before we get in to our main topic, Jay, do you have any rants, complaints, inconveniences, uncomfortableness you've experienced or you've given to others this oh week? God. It's so hard to choose every week. I feel like I have a long list that compiles starting Monday morning. <laughs> um <laughs> So it's hard to whittle it down to one little nugget that is just going to wow everybody's earlobes. But when I was thinking about the topic of our episode today, I was really calling through memories, all of the terrible, terrible memories that haunt me every day and every night Mm -hmm. (laughs) and keep me up late at night because I haven't been sleeping. And um, one that kept returning to me in under this theme of love and attachment is the humiliation and embarrassment <laughs> you feel when you look back at your relationships, especially the early ones that really oh, set yes. a pattern for the rest of your mm-hmm. dating and romantic life. And you're like, fuck, like that was a really seminal moment. And I didn't realize how bad it hurt until now. And it's like 30 years later And I didn't realize that this has been shaping every move and every partner that I choose. (laughs) So very much so in junior high school. (laughs) (laughs) And so it begins. (laughs) I was ushered into a world of lockers and eating disorders. (laughs) Uh, No. Um, So in junior high, I was going through a very troubled time (laughs) And uh, things were really hard at home for me. And I think I was uh, dealing with a lot at school too, kind of feeling like I didn't really belong. Like I had friends. I had, uh, I knew lots of people and belonged to different groups of friends. And I just kind of rotated among them. But I think because of who I am and the things I've gone through, I, I always felt peripheral to every group. You know, I was like always the third wheel, it felt like. Um, and so a lot of that home stuff and social school stuff started manifesting in my writing. So I would write stuff in English class and I don't know what I wrote. I don't have these notebooks anymore. I have no recollection of what I divulged in these stupid as journal prompts for like seventh grade English, but they mandated that I had to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, and I totally took it the wrong way. I was like, yeah, I'm a badass writer. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking like, oh, there's probably some stuff I should talk about. Um, Yeah. So the, the therapist that they sent me to through the school started crying on our first session. Like I made her cry. I don't know what I was telling her about. It was just, she was asking questions about my family Uh and all this. And she started crying. (laughs) I was like, bitch, you're bad at your job. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so I kind of took it as a joke. And so I didn't take it very seriously. But anyway, this is kind of like pivoting away from what the story that I want to tell, (laughs) but just to provide some context. 
So yeah, I started kind of um, working through my feelings in other ways. Like I got super into punk rock and was like shaving my head. And you know, like for an Asian American kid to shave their head, like in our culture, that's like somebody dies and you shave your head. So for the girl, the first one daughter to shave her head, that was like got me in a lot of trouble. And I started wearing all these band t-shirts and, um, you know, black and eyeliner and anger and all that stuff so that was kind of what was going on and so I think the more black that I wore it just magnetized certain people to me but it wasn't like the cool hot guys who were like brooding and you know it never is yeah like I just it's so upsetting yeah I really at the time I wanted someone who looked like Brandon Lee from the crow you know it's like got the hot Bruce Lee jeans Um, and then like the tight clothes and the veins are popping and the eyeliners on point, but it was just like weird misanthropic kind of outsiders. But because I felt terrible as a person, I didn't care because I have fallen in patterns where I'll just like anybody who likes me because it's never about my standard. I don't even know what my standard is or my values are because I don't trust myself and I hate myself. So (laughs) I didn't even know what that was. So like whoever liked me, I'm like, oh my God, they're my one true love. Just because they gave me the time of day. So Allura. Yeah. (laughs) I went to middle school in Northern Orange County, which um, does and did and maybe still does have a subset of, um, white supremacist organizations and neo-nazi you know social groups <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so the more black i wore the more i noticed that these guys who were like kind of trench coat and doc martin boots were gravitating toward me and now to remind you of how old i am this is before columbine okay so like this became like a whole symbol of danger and mental illness and racism and violence and all that later but at this point it was just like ooh, it's a bad boy and so this dude in a trench coat and these doc martin boots who i thought was just like into punk and like goth and stuff was into me and i was like oh my god i'm just like a fledgling little seventh grader who's getting my period and has knobby knees and somebody likes me boy howdy and so I was so excited and then so one day we went to a friend in Common's house and we were listening to I think it was Marilyn Manson at the time because that one album do you even know who Marilyn Manson is I do and he scares me Yeah, as you should. So that was like big at the time. So we were listening to that. And then he started doing like a Heil Hitler salute. And in my... my, No, he doesn't. Like to, to the rhythm of a Marilyn Manson song. I'm not making this up. This is true. Like this really happened. And I know there were other people there who validated and confirmed that this happened because now that I look back, I'm like, no fucking way. Like this is too crazy racist. But I mean, we see racism all the time, but when it happens like this, you're like, what? Um, it was like real chef's kiss racism, you know? So he's hiling Hitler to the rhythm of a Marilyn Manson song and I'm 12 and I'm like, <laughs> Oh God, I hope he still likes me. <laughs> but I really, I really think that this is going to play into some of the stuff that we're going to share in this episode because when it comes to gulp love and attachment, I put so much emphasis on the other person and taking care of them and their feelings. And not on my own or like what my own values or standards or desires or needs are that I will overlook (laughs) someone is fucking mimicking (laughs) the Nazis um, because I'm like, oh, my God, I just really want someone to love me. Like, I just really want someone to like me so, so bad, Um, which is really sad when I say it out loud. Very sad. (laughs) 
But the funny end to all of this story, because it, it did end that day, of course. I don't want anyone listening okay. to like, whoa, she dated a neo-Nazi? No, 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 no. It ended that day, of course, because obviously I was like, whoa. I mean, my mom's family's from Vietnam, so obviously we're not into white supremacy. But then also my dad's family's from Norway, and our last name's Hidla, and they changed their last, a lot of them changed their last names when they came to America because it sounded too much like Hitler. So, like, there's these different ways white supremacy has affected both my family histories. And obviously, it's just nauseating and gross and fucking stupid. And we see it everywhere today. And it is my one true enemy in this world, as it should be for all of us. But, um, yeah, it ended that day because I told my friend and I was like, that's like, that's like the Nazi salute, right? Like, does he know that I'm like not a white girl like isn't it obvious that I'm not a white girl like look at my skin look at mm-hmm. my hair look at my anything you know about me mm-hmm. like how does he not know like then I became curious it was like going to a zoo and like how does he not see it like why wouldn't you go for like an Aryan looking bitch you know there's plenty of them in Orange County <laughs> the brain, like a whole fucking cheerleading team and um my friend goes, oh, I don't know. And then she, like, whispers, you know, she's not white. <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, is she, like, Mexican? Which is, you know, always the default for us, right? Right. No color or mix. You're always like, oh, Mexican? And they go, no, I am Asian and Vietnamese. And then he was, like, done. And he was pretending to be grossed out that he got tricked by me. You know, quote unquote. Oh, okay. You no, know, for because that's what we do. We like to trick white supremacists into loving us. Um, so that was kind of funny that you know someone who states their values based on race doesn't even know how to recognize phenotype or any kind of racial mm-hmm. marker or any awareness of anything in the world, which is true ignorance, and that's funny. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, do they ever know? No. Yeah. So I hope he learned something that day. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, he did it. But yeah, so I guess that makes me uncomfortable that white supremacy is in all of my memories all the time everywhere. And that that non-relationship, just that moment, that day that happened, I think really shaped a lot because I'm always super conscious and sensitive to Mm -hmm. like is this person dating me because of my race or based on a stereotype because I don't know have you had this like a lot of people that I've dated have told me like I've never dated anyone who looked like you like you're so different and I'm like really I don't know how to take that yeah like (laughs) thanks I guess like I'm glad I could be part of your collection so yeah that's what's making me uncomfortable that I still have that memory and it still haunts me thanks a lot cerebral cortex that was amazing it was a journey terrifying at the same time yeah so what's making you uncomfortable today Um. (laughs) (laughs) any white supremacy stories (laughs) Also, can I go off on a rant? So, yes, always. Waters at amusement parks. Dasani has a monopoly on them. (laughs) And they, Mm -hmm. I hate Dasani. They put Mm -hmm. salt in it. It, Oh my God. You are the first person to acknowledge this. I've been telling people that Dasani is salty for years and no one believes me. They put salt in it. So that it will make you thirstier and then you'll buy more bottles and the bottles are like $4 each. Almost five. Olura, you're my own personal Jesus. You. you show me the truth. It's, it's bad. bad. Yeah, I agree. I'm so glad you can taste the salt, yeah. right? Yeah, and then also read the label. Because it's not regular water. Oh, it's on the line. I never read the label. I just no, tasted it. You, it tastes yeah, like just something is disgusting. And then it just like they have like other stuff in there too for taste. And I was like, it's water. Yeah, shouldn't have to do that. No, 
because it isn't water. It's kind of also, I. it's a little thicker. Is yeah. it? Like, it's like a viscous water? A bit. It's like a little thick. It's not as fluid as water. Ew. It's kind of like a, in between a liquid and a gel. Nasty. That's probably all the bad juju yeah. they put in there. It's like spirit. Very much so. So, hate salted Dasani water. Not a fan. Um, Me too. I'm so glad you said that. This is why we were meant to be. Mm-hmm. Soulmates. Um, I think those are my complaints. Do you ever have kids come up to you at the amusement park and like touch your butt or try to hold your hand because they think you're their mom? I haven't had one of those yet. I don't think I give off that energy. Um, yeah. Maybe it's too much of an ice queen Very vibe. So. They're like, oh my god, it's Chamorro Elsa. Yeah. <laughs> that happens to me a lot. So maybe I just have like a mom bot or I'm giving off um, nurturing mm-hmm. vibes. They're like, oh, well, she'll take care of a white supremacist feeling. So maybe she'll take care right. of me too. Oh, well, I hope you had fun. Had the best time. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> Besides all that, hmm, yes, amusement parks can bring out the remaining nuggets of joy left in our cold, dark Mm -hmm. souls. So, I mean, today we're going to be talking about love and attachment, and we definitely want to go into the the earliest first loves that are really, truly the heartbreaks that stay with us the longest. Did you ever go to Disneyland or an amusement park with a partner a love interest I have actually just recently like last year did it make or break the relationship because I know that an amusement park can really oh my goodness your yes relationship. um I don't think I think it was fine I actually thought I saw a couple like a teenage couple like break up in Disneyland when I was there <laughs> Oh, and I was like, no. not the time nor place, but I get it. And <laughs> I kind of wanted yeah. to watch for the remainder of the day because it was also like early in the day too. You know, like how's the oh, rest of the day? So they didn't go? even make it that long. Yeah, right. But yeah, right. amusement parks are very much a testament to the strongness of a relationship. There's just so many things that could go wrong. personality types come out yeah like you said I think waiting in line like you have those line games to play with your friends and that's fun but sometimes you can just tell in line Mm -hmm. who's vibing and who's not because that's you just have each other in that two hours that you're waiting or whatever and then all the stimulation so you're you know, your stress rates are super high and then all the money and the sugar. It's just a lot. It's just, a, you know, a constellation of things that yes. will put you to the test. I, I once um, went to Disneyland with a boyfriend that I realized was the most boring person I had ever met. Because <laughs> Disneyland was boring. I was like, I love Disneyland, have loved it since I was a kid. It's some of my best memories of my life. And especially now that I have kids, it's some of their best memories, our best memories together. But that day was like so fucking boring. That's terrible. Because he was boring. Yeah. So at least it weeded that person out of my life. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but otherwise, I I don't think I tend to commit to that many hours with a mm-hmm. person with like dating and relationships. I always try to keep them fairly short because right. I tend to get exhausted with people. That's a good point. Does your current partner exhaust you, or does he fill up your cup? <laughs> no, I. Well, I think the reason that I married my husband is because he was the only one that was mm-hmm. different from all the other. So I think my pattern of relationships from the beginning is that I would choose people who didn't really like me. A lot of the vast majority of them, I think, were in love with other people, oh. which is a strange thing that I 
magnetize people who whose heart is elsewhere. So I was just kind of like passing their time or taking care of them. Another pattern that I have is taking care of people during hard times in their life. So it was really nothing about me. It was just kind of the state of their lives at that time. So I think my husband is really the only person who was different. He always chose me, you know? Um, and so that sounds like a small thing that a lot of people take for granted, but that was a huge thing for me that he saw me and he chose me um, and has always prioritized me. So I think that makes me very uncomfortable because I'm not used to it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, ew, what's this love? Um, but I think that's definitely the reason why we're there. And I don't get tired of him. Awesome. We've been together for 10 years, you know? That's cute. I, that's so yeah, wholesome. Person I don't get tired. It is very wholesome. This is becoming a Hallmark episode. Look at that. So, um, okay. So yeah, I can definitely go to an amusement park with my husband for sure. We do that all the time. So that's fun. Um, okay. So first loves, first heartbreaks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was telling Alora before the episode started that I'm not sure how much I want to tell here. Yeah. Because uh, some of my first ones are pretty volatile. But um, do you want to start first? Sure, I'll start because I don't think mine are as volatile or crazy. Um... <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Um, my first love, I would say, okay, I'll say my first infatuation that I thought was love, that I learned later that it wasn't actually, I think I was in, I think I was a freshman in high school and I was obsessed, obsessed with this man. He was, I think a junior at the time. Um, I know, look at that. And <laughs> so then, like, you know, we became friends. We started dating. He was my boyfriend. But at the time, um, I was held under a very short leash at home. You know, like, I was, like, at school, then I was home. And that was it. So I didn't really have much, like, leeway or, like, free time or available time to like really like hang out with my boyfriend at the time. And so eventually, you know, like he just broke up with me and I was just heartbroken. Like I was crushed because I thought I was like in love with this man. So just broken. And then he like gets a new girlfriend just like shortly after, you know? So sure, I was thanks. just totally crushed and they were together for like throughout the rest of high school and like beyond um yeah and I never like recovered like I didn't recover for the longest time probably like two years later you know where I was like fine but ever since then I've noticed that I typically tend to end things first because mm -hmm. I <laughs> <laughs> my knowing smile I'm like, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that set off a chain reaction I would say because um, I don't think I ever wanted to go through that first breakup that I experienced because it was so painful and it was so hard mm -hmm. um, so I think I've always kept my other romantic relationships like at an arm's length and never really letting mm -hmm. people in because it makes me uncomfortable. And I also don't like being vulnerable at all. Do you feel like <clears throat> because you have these defenses up and you create this distance, do you feel like you end up taking care of the other person more and like listening to them more? Or is it just distance both ways? Yeah, I, I think I typically tend to the other person more but I don't let them take care of me mm -hmm. yeah same yeah that makes a lot of yeah. sense because like my dad always told me like you can never depend on like me 
or anyone else, you know, the only person that's a constant mm-hmm. is you. So you're the only person that can really take care of you. And I was like, got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are succeeding by, by your dad's standards, you know, you're, you're winning right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think you kind of hit on the the root of that because I'm very similar to you in that way. Like when you said that you'd end things, I realized that all my relationships, I would always end them. And I don't know if you had this, but I would take a long time in between relationships, mm-hmm. just like being alone. Do you have oh, that yeah. too? Like I need to just recollect and like be in touch again with who I am individually you know, because I do think I, like, fully give myself to the other person. And, like, I, mm-hmm. like, become, like, the nurturer. And so then I have to, like, mm-hmm. remind myself I have to nurture me. And then yeah. I have to be, like, mm-hmm. selfish with, like, my time and myself um, to get better. Yeah, it's like a recovery yeah. period almost. Yeah, it's exhausting to overinvest or have an imbalanced investment in someone else. That is hard. Wow, we are way more similar than I yeah. even realized. And I knew we were twins that's to begin insane. with, but yeah, that's that's, us. that's true. But like what your dad said to you, my mom would always say, "Pretty much everyone's out to get. Oh, you. Everybody's 100%. out to take advantage." Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, definitely part of our parents' survival mechanism, too. Like, our parents come from hard places and have struggled. And so it makes sense that they would get that message. Um, But because of where we are and we have certain privileges and affordances that they didn't have, a lot of times that survival mindset doesn't serve us very well because then we're like, fuck everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, we don't feel loved. <laughs> Um, question so yeah how do you like does it take a lot for you to leave and like what's that process like do you just make a split Mm -hmm. decision that you're done or is it like small like you're collecting like (laughs) small things and it's just over time and then finally that like one minuscule thing happens and then you're just like okay it's over. I'm detached. I'm done. We're good. Oh, yeah. You okay. answered the question. Okay. <laughs> you know, Virginia Woolf, she killed herself by putting stones in the pockets of her dress and walking into the river. I feel like that's how I've been that's in relationships. Like every little thing that they do is another stone in my pocket. And I will collect them and keep everything in. And I will, I have this internal voice that tells me I'm not worthy. Like I'm a shit person. So I should just be grateful this person's with me. So I'll put up with all their shit that hurts me or that annoys me or that is just incompatible with me. And these are the stones that are weighing me down in my pockets until I eventually drown. And like you said, I just detach. I'm like, you're fucking dead to me. Um, and usually it's just a little thing. It's like the straw that broke mm-hmm. the camel's back to use a cliche. Um, you know, the last stone that drowned Virginia Wolf, like it's, and they don't understand it because they're like, well, I just left the toilet out seat of nowhere. Like, I fucking hate you and your mother too. <laughs> you know? um, and then I'm just, I'm excellent. And I've learned, speaking of like intergenerational trauma and lessons, like I have learned how to cut people off really well by witnessing it in my own like, family life. So I can just be a fucking killer when it comes to cutting people down and off so yeah that like how you described it is exactly how I've rolled for most of my life like everything I'm talking about is pre-marriage stuff which was a big life changer for me and I've learned a lot from being married um but prior to that it was that's how I rolled and everything was real short. Like I could never stay with anybody for too long because I would get so overwhelmed with all this resentment and anger. And then it would just explode and I would sever ties. 
which ended up like enhancing my fear and sense of abandonment. Mm -hmm. I think I was always afraid that people were going to leave. And so I had to be the first one to leave. Um, So, yeah. And I think I would be so exhausted too, because I tend to overinvest in people. Like I'll do so much for them, basically like cleaning their feet and like throwing them birthday parties every Tuesday, you know, like (laughs) way too much for other Mm -hmm. people and not accepting or not even knowing what I want in return. So it just like is the scale that's being tipped all the time. And I'm complicit in that. It's not like that person's fault. I just am complicit in establishing this dynamic that is totally neglectful of me. It's like I recreate my own sense of neglect growing up and my sense of being a burden. And so I'll try to replicate that or mediate that in a relationship. And of course, obviously that never worked. Um, so yeah, thanks for asking that question, Laura. <laughs> Um, but yeah I I um so like how you talked about that that first big relationship kind of setting you up for all the ones that followed I think my I actually I'm remembering now that my first relationships were a little bit juicy it was a little bit of a love triangle now that I think about it yeah. So I was always a super awkward girl. So in junior high, like when my friends were getting pregnant and like giving blowjobs in the mm-hmm. bathroom, I was like, want to see my CD collection? <laughs> I do. You know, I, I like, do want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I alphabetized them. And color coded them. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. And they're organized yeah. by genre. <laughs> um, but what do you do with yeah. Rage Against the Machine? I mean... <laughs> genre um so I was always kind of uh nerdy and I think I was really preoccupied with things like music and reading and art uh as a way to secure and seclude myself like I felt much safer if I was just by myself because I just felt like the more relationships I had or even the more friendships I had even the more people I talked to it made me more anxious and more afraid of being hurt so I would just kind of like you like keep people at arm's length I would learn all about people I'm a great listener but until this fucking podcast I never talk about myself you know I'd rather not (laughs) um but we're learning to take up space mental Mm -hmm. health um so in high school I had my first boyfriend super sweet guy super super sweet it was like all true and blue to me and would write me letters and draw me pictures he's very artistic and um so he was really sweet and I think uh like Alora you said you're um super protected and kind of sheltered growing up well me and him both were getting in a lot of trouble so we were always on like he was on house arrest (gasps) and I was on oh my goodness (laughs) so it was like this relationship where we physically couldn't see each other and we didn't have cell phones back then uh, to date myself again. Um, and so every once in a while I get like a letter in the mail. A letter? By, by pigeon, oh by courier goodness. pigeon. Yeah, so he was very sweet in that way. I have nothing bad to say about this guy. And um, I think the girlfriend he had after me, he got mm. pregnant. So, yes, I'm so glad I was not a teen mom because I would have fucked up that kid so bad. But so that boyfriend was in a band, a punk band with a hot drummer. Mm. And he was the older brother of one of my friends. And so I would see him when I would see her. And it was just kind of one of those things where, like, one day he came to pick her up after school and, like, we locked eyes and it was, like, the hormone dance began. (laughs) So, but then I felt really guilty because he was bandmates with, like, my Mm ex-boyfriend that ended just because we couldn't see each other because we were always in trouble. So, this relationship with the drummer was, like, wild ups and downs like laughing and loving each other and being so into each other and then just fucking having 
throw down violent fights in the middle of the street, like a couple of garbage humans. Yeah. So we were just very up and down and it was very chaotic. Uh, but I love that dude. Like I, I just saw so much potential in him. He was so smart and so creative, but we were just like teenagers, bad times in our lives, dealing with like a lot of issues that I won't go into, but it was really the first heartbreak of, oh my God, like I love this person so much. And, oh, this is the first person I had sex with too. So that oh, man. Was like double whammy. Thing. Double whammy for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, it was just rough and I can't really go into how it ended, but there was a lot of things that happened that were really, really bad and really serious. And I think the hardest thing about that was that it, there was no resolution. You know, it wasn't like we had a talk and we're like, oh, we're breaking up. It was all these other things that were happening that kind of broke us apart. So that was really hard. Um, and I still have so much love for him and, you know, his family, they played a big part in my life and took care of me for the hard times that I went through too. So I'm forever grateful and indebted to him and his family for that. But yeah, I was just so hurt. I think, so for me, and I'm sure you understand, Allura, like we are control <laughs> freaks. We're anxious. We like to know how things are happening. I like to have a plan. We need to have an itinerary. And I know you're like that too. <laughs> um, That's an understatement. So when you, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think you're younger than me. You have more energy to invest in that. I think as I get older, I'm like, oh, I just can't keep up with my own schedule anymore. But um, so like when things don't have a resolute ending, like a finality to them, it continues to stress me out. So I think the relationships that I've had that don't have a clear resolution or I, I don't know how that person feels, um, that that super lingers with me and haunts me a little bit because I think I grew up in a house where I was always nervous about uh, I was always walking on eggshells because I didn't know how someone's mood would mm -hmm. change and, you know, react violently to me or angrily toward me. Um, so I'm always super conscious of, oh my God, does this person hate me? Like, is this person okay? Like, is something wrong with them? So when there's no resolution to a relationship, I have that feeling still years later, like, are they okay? Like, are we okay? Um, you know, and I always wonder how that relationship exists in their memory if they're just like, oh, yeah, one time I dated this bitch, Jay. Ugh, what a terrible thing for her. She's no damn. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's hard to to not have a, like, a kind of sense of completion to it. Not that there's any lingering feelings of, like, oh, I wish this was still going on or anything like that. It just feels like that part of our lives needed to have some mm -hmm. healing from it, I think. Um, so yeah, that, that came off more sad than funny as I had intended. Okay. I'm <laughs> interested to see what the funny parts were, but in your mind, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But have you, from that relationship, did you notice a pattern in your future ones? Um, yeah, I definitely feel like I was always choosing people or allowing people to choose me that had issues going on in their lives. And so I kind of defaulted to a caretaker mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and I was never good at expressing my needs and I would almost, I mean, to, I would accept abuse because it feels comfortable to me. It feels normal. And I didn't realize this till fairly recently that I tolerated abuse because it's a, uh, it, it feels right to me. It feels like I deserve it because I think that's what I grew up with. <clears throat> um, and I just realized too, that I would instigate 
conflict to create these abusive situations because I feel like I deserve it. And so it's almost like this masochistic thing. Like, I want you to punish me because I think I'm such a bad person. Like, I need you to yell at me and hit me and treat me like shit and cheat on me because that's what mm-hmm. I deserve. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. That's been your podcast today. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, I think those are like some deep-seated emotions that takes a long time to undo. And I think I'm still working through some of those feelings and and not feeling like I deserve to be punished by everyone at every turn and not trying to console myself of the feeling that not everybody in my life hates mm-hmm. my guts and wants to kill right. me. But I don't do you feel like you've been able to change some of the patterns like through building awareness and changing your behaviors or choosing different partners? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's I'm all. trying to <laughs> formulate thoughts. Um, I was in like almost a two year relationship recently, um, broke it off in earlier this year. Um, and I think that was the like healthiest like relationship I've ever been in. It was also like the most um, like long term. Um, mm. And I'm actually still like super close with um, his family, um, him and his mother, me and her are best friends, besties. Uh, <laughs> but that relationship taught me a lot um, because I didn't, I wasn't interested <laughs> at first. It, it was a long time mm-hmm. um, before I was just like, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it lasted forever. <laughs> Everybody likes to be worn down to get yes, in a relationship. Um, <laughs> like, the key to my heart is persistence. You just keep coming and yeah. I'll just be like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> I hope surrender I guess eventually. It's going to happen now. Um, yeah, but before. I just never knew I could be healthy, you know, like Mm -hmm. I could be Mm -hmm. like a healthy person in a relationship. Um, So that was a nice realization. Um, Of course, like it wasn't perfect. Like we had issues and I could have been better, but I think I put in a lot um, that I wasn't, didn't know I was capable of. Mm-hmm. So I'm really appreciative to that relationship because I think it really opened the doors for me to be a normal person. <laughs> One of those normals. <laughs> and then we just take like an attachment style quiz and it's the opposite of that. <laughs> oh my God. Should we talk about our quiz results for our attachment yes. styles? So we took a quiz about our attachment styles. I actually wrote, uh, not wrote, I read a book earlier this year called Attached. um, And it's all about adult attachment. And I realized that um, I took a quiz in the book and I got like the rarest Mm -hmm. one. It's anxious, avoidant. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. So who hurt you, Aluren? How can you stop it? Um, But anyway, we took a quiz earlier before the podcast started. um, And we both got, what was it called? We both got fearful Fearful avoidant, avoidant, which is Mm -hmm. beautiful. So triggering. So triggering. I also, my second highest was dismissive avoidant. That's so, so true for you. <laughs> I'm just gaslighting people but left I, and right, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I really admire that, though, because dismissive avoidant feels like you're in charge, you know? 100%. And when I read when I read the results for fearful avoidant, because I didn't like the way yeah. it sounded. Fear, I don't like being afraid, you know? I don't feel like I come off like an afraid person. I feel that way inside, but I don't want right. to come off that way. And I was like, fuck this, fearful avoidant. But then it starts out like really, uh, you know, stroking my ego. It's like, oh, you're a very high achiever who sets top standards for yourself, queen. Yes. (laughs) And then it goes into like being a workaholic and you're very focused and you achieve a lot and you um, 
yeah, you achieve a lot outside of your romantic relationships. You're very compassionate, empathetic, and giving. So you always create uh, space and love and listening for your partners, but you do not open up yourself mm-hmm. to them. So like you'll give everything to them, but you can't to them. Oh, and then here's the kicker, Alora. You can't help but be hyper attuned to body language micro expressions at any given Quite literally. In our- <laughs> yes. That, okay, so that's what really ties into your test in the book, which is the anxiety attachment, because it's like everything is a trauma trigger. So when we call this episode love is a trigger word, it's like everything your partner does, you're so attuned to caring for their needs like every expression can be a trigger for you and if you grew up with like in a household where people are unstable um then you're always reading the room for those things to be like okay how do I need to prepare myself emotionally to first of all survive myself Mm -hmm. but then also take care of these people around me who need it so I think these attachment styles feel very for me I won't speak for you but very deeply rooted in um you know how we grew um, up yeah. too <laughs> <laughs> you can answer for me and look at the at the bottom of where it says if you're dating someone who constantly tries to get closer to you you get turned off and need to distance yourself so it's almost like we've been conditioned to not expect love to the point where we turn like, it away normal quote-unquote yeah, healthy expressions of love gross us mm-hmm. out. It really does. And yeah, I'm not a hugging person. No. And you know what's weird? Like learn- I'll be like such a hugger. Like I'll say I love you to like complete like strangers, you know? Mm-hmm. But I refuse to show any semblance of emotion, care, physical touch to the people that I actually do love and truly care about. <laughs> Because it disgusts me. <laughs> I, well, I have noticed that when I try to hug you, you stiffen up like a corpse, like in rigor mortis. So I guess that means you love me. <laughs> um, you're literally in yeah. rictus when I try to hug you or when I initiate it, you know. Just like, so what, where do you think that comes from? I don't know. For me, I always say, like, actions speak louder than words. So I always try Mm -hmm. and have my actions match my feelings to the person, you know? So, like, I will go above and beyond. I will do anything and everything for you. But I'm not going to, like, hug you and say I love you because you should just know that by what I'm doing. Okay, so here's the tricky thing about that, because I 100% agree with you. And I think there is like a cultural component to that, too. Like, like, yeah, you like white, like white mm-hmm. people say, I love you, right? And that's so easy. Yeah. Like you could say, I love you to anyone. So it feels empty and fake. And I think <laughs> from the cultures we grew up with, we learned that white people are empty and <laughs> fake. <laughs> just because of history look it up people don't get offended by that um look it up um but so like our cultures are often demonstrating love through the actions like why do I need to tell you that I love you if I fed you and I took care of you and I did all these things for you and I definitely grew up with that and I still feel that way um and I'm always trying to show people love but here's the tricky thing I want to ask you about because I think there's a very fine line. So this kind of plays into our, our workaholic mm-hmm. tendencies because we will work ourselves ragged to give back to communities that we love, to relationships that we love. We'll do a lot for other people. So, you know, when does, when does that tell us that we feel like we are only part of that relationship or part of that community if we work ourselves ragged? Like, how do we set that boundary so that our self-worth or our worth of being loved is not contingent upon what we do for others. And I think as women of color, we got to be careful mm-hmm. about that because women of color are always the ones who work the hardest in every situation. 
Hashtag. <laughs> So like how do, I guess my question is like how do you set that? Boundary? I guess I like, don't set do boundaries. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, cool, good. <laughs> I actually uh, read a book about you know boundary setting, and I thought like before I read it, I was like, oh, good to go, like I'm good. Um, and then like the first three chapters like attacked me personally, and <laughs> they were like, no, Allura, uh, you set rigid boundaries, you're passive aggressive, and you're avoidant, and I said. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and then you, you burned the exactly. <laughs> mm. So has this been a source of conflict for you? Like if your love language is showing and demonstrating, has it caused conflict in relationships when you have a partner who has a different kind of love language or needs it in other ways? Yeah, like my going into like love languages my love language is um quality time and acts of service and the one i hate the most is both physical touch and words of affirmation because i cannot tell you what you want to hear i just can't like i cannot come up with the words to tell you you're doing a good job you know, yeah, those um nausea very much so because it makes me feel like the person, uh, you know, in Vietnamese, we have this uh, saying that it basically translates to like if you call a child beautiful, they'll grow up to be ugly. So it's almost like if you're telling people these things all the time, it will give them license to just slack mm-hmm. off and like let it go. So I think that reverse really psychology. Yeah. So like when someone needs to hear from me, the words are like a description of something positive. It literally makes me feel nauseated because I'm like, why are you so needy? Like, why do you need that? And so I'm trying to work on realizing that's just a different, you know, quote unquote love language. Mm-hmm. I'm not crazy about that term, I think, because it's being overused now, but uh, it's very, very hard for me to learn how to practice that and see it as equivalent to my love language of, like you said, like acts of service. I like that. Um, but just like this demonstrable action that proves that I love you and I shouldn't have to say it. But I know that's me being self-righteous and be like my mm-hmm. way or the highway. Um, but I need to see those are equal they're just different they're not equal in my mind (laughs) and I stand firm on that (laughs) with all this I love you stuff Um, yeah my friend um Laksu he wrote a memoir and he titled it I love you's are for white people and I think that (laughs) so encapsulates this conversation it's just it's a big it's a cultural hurdle too not just a personal mental hurdle so as as you look ahead Mm -hmm. to when you start your online dating profiles as we've discussed in a previous episode and you venture into that next relationship what are your goals to get out of the relationship and how do you think you might address these attachment styles and love languages differently okay um well I am not going into the dating apps thinking I'm finding love. Which means you will. (laughs) Um, I'm mostly doing it to pass time, um, to get some entertainment, maybe get me a confidence boost every once in a while. Um... Okay, let's say you have a a new relationship come up, whether it's from the dating apps or from real life. Mm -hmm. How, what do you think will be different this time around? Or what are your goals for yourself and for your partner? Um, that's a great question. To be honest, I'm not really in the place (laughs) that I would want. Like, I'm very just emotionally unavailable right now. Mm-hmm. So you're taking self-care? Very much so. 
Um, but I always said I wanted my next relationship to be with someone that's like a complete stranger, like that no one knows. Mm. You know, kind of like a blank slate, clean canvas. Ooh, I would. You kind of sound like a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> I want someone that I can draw on in blood. <laughs> um, I want someone to not take care of me, but to show me that I can be taken care of, you know? And just, like, do, mm-hmm. like, instead of, like, asking to do things, they just do them. Yeah, Someone that's, yeah. like, on the same level as me, like, in just life in general. Mm-hmm. yeah kind of the same place mm-hmm. in life with goals and I think that's hard for you because you achieve a lot and you work really hard so it's hard to find someone who matches yeah that way. <laughs> <laughs> again I'm when I think into the future and like I can very clearly visualize myself like in the future when I'm doing it's never with a partner like I'm always by myself Hmm. I love it there's nothing wrong yeah with I don't that. think there is so I'm just I don't have yeah, I high think, hopes I think our culture always tries to program us to think that we need to have a partner or a relationship to be fulfilled but fuck that you know you don't need any of that yeah so we'll see. <laughs> Do you think love will always be a trigger word for oh, 100%. you? One hundred percent. I want to say. That... Did you want to end it on a positive note? Is that what you were trying? <laughs> No, I don't want to be toxic, but I do, I think there is a flickering flame of hope inside of me that wants to say that the things that wounded us when we were young don't have to shape or dictate the rest of our lives. Like love (laughs) doesn't always have to be a trigger word, but I think it kind of, that will always be there. You know, even if we heal and work on it and it doesn't, hurt us anymore it's the memory will still be there and that's still a part of us so I think it's just hard to figure out who you are aside from trauma (laughs) (laughs) like it becomes one of you and then you're like okay but what's me like what do I want to keep as myself outside of those things that happened to me and how do you even see that so I think that's the the ongoing learning process so yeah yeah I I mean I'm married mm-hmm. but it's definitely still a learning process you know I just want to be a good partner I think I think you are I think you're the bestest thank you you're the best and uh uh-huh. I oh love God. you. <laughs> I was like tensing up because I knew you were going to say it. I could see the fear and the anxiety and the dismissiveness. Yeah, in I actually eyes. asked my mother the other day. I was just like, why aren't we like, you know, affectionate with each other? And she was like, that's just you. And I was just like, um, Excuse me. It's mm. not. I will. I will say yeah. I do. I am more just cold. I don't let it in. But she made it that way as well. Yeah, it becomes a nurture versus nature argument. Yeah. You know, like how much of that were you born with, and then how much of your parents kind of shape mm-hmm. that. I will say, though, like, since we met each other and, you know, the program and the community that we came to each other to, that has teached me, it teached me a lot. Um, It taught me to hug and stuff. Yeah. 
because I think our group of people is very physically demonstrative and I never grew up with that and it weirds me out. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've given more hugs at our workplace than I ever have anywhere else in my whole entire life. And I probably do it in a really awkward mm-hmm. way. Like one time my friend was like, why do you put your arms up like that? And why are you like so, you know, I was like criticizing my body language during a hug. And I was like, okay, well, that does not make me want to hug you ever again. My body's fine. <laughs> not really, but. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, is is that a good note to end on? Or do we need something no, else? No, I think do we're we good. I think we should just wrap it up. Um... <laughs> okay, go for it. Take it away. Um, so that's the end of our podcast. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> taking a back seat into our love-torn, trauma-dumped minds. Um, please follow us on Instagram at TMMU Podcast. Join our community, subscribe, and until next time, make good choices. Maybe say I love you to someone. That's it. Ew. I know. Goodbye. <laughs>